Today, our conversation, um, Alden Laurie is going to introduce the rest of the panelists, so you all know how I feel about bios. That's why we all went to second or third grade so we could learn to read. I'm not going to insult your intelligence, but I will tell you that Alden Laurie um, joined WBEZ in 2018 and served as senior editor of the Race, Class, and Communities Desk which provides enterprise reporting on those topics, as well as daily reporting on housing, immigration, and employment. And anything else that you want to know about him, you may either ask him or you can Google him or look him up. Um, I believe we have a bio on our webpage, and of course you can go to WBEZ. Um, I just feel like that's a minute that I could give you back of your time. So I won't go through that. Um, I think we're in for a really, really good conversation today. Sometimes our conversations are tough, and I think that we're making our way. I was talking with Alderman Rodriguez, and he was saying, you know, that we're seeing improvements in various places, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, we talk about a problem all the time, and I have a, another friend who often says, we talk about a problem so much that we admire it. At some point, we have to stop admiring it and do the work. And that's not my quote. I'd like to take it but it does not belong to me. Um, actually, I borrow that frequently from a, a person you guys might know, Melody Hobson. So she said it to me in a meeting, and I kind of felt like this big after she said it. I was like, oh, okay, I guess I need to stop whining about it and do something. So I'm going to come down from this place. I'm going to ask Alden to come up. You guys can applaud for him. And he's going to bring up the rest of our panelists. You coming this way or? Okay. And I'll let you introduce the rest of it. Are you mic'd yet? I am. Okay. Can you see live? Okay. So I'll come down and you guys can. Okay. Or however you want to do it. No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Jackie, thanks so much. And uh, thanks to uh, Laurie Glenn, uh, first and foremost, for. Uh, inviting me to do this, and uh, thanks to the City Club for having me. Uh, it is uh, an incredible honor. I can remember the first time being here as a Chicago reporter. Um, I think I was actually sneaking in uh, to attend the, the luncheon uh, initially there. Uh, I was usually out of our budget to actually pay for the tickets. Um, but uh, later on, got a chance to ask Bill Klein uh, a question actually about community policing, uh, particularly in neighborhoods uh, where uh, crime is especially an issue and uh, that was uh, that was a thrill. So it's it's a you know full circle uh, being being up here now. Uh, community policing, uh, talking about the importance of community policing uh, within the Chicago Police Department has brought us here today. Uh, we have three very esteemed panelists who are going to discuss that. I will call them up by name, and then once they are assembled on the stage, uh, I will ask them to say a few brief words about who they are. Uh, I think they'll be better at it than I am. Uh, so let's start with. Uh, uh, um, with Nicole. Uh, uh, Bob Boyk and Anthony Driver Jr. Uh, the stage probably doesn't need setting, but if you will embellish me just for a moment. Um, so we're at a very pivotal moment uh, here in Chicago. Uh, a very contested uh, mayoral race uh, where the issue of policing, the issue of violence and crime was kind of uh, front and center. Um, we have uh, a couple of very big moments uh, ahead of us. Uh, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial start of the summer, and is also, as a journalist, you know, one of the first times when we really start paying attention to the number of shootings, the number of homicides that occur in Chicago over the weekends. Um, it is a sadly uh, consistent summer ritual here in Chicago uh, that lasts pretty much from the end of May through the end of September. Um, so we are bracing ourselves for what we know is coming. Um, in the midst of all of that, we will be selecting a police superintendent uh, to lead the Chicago the Police Department. And so there are issues of community policing and where, what its role is, policing in general, and how we address crime and violence, but also issues of how to maintain a police force in a professional manner, 
Uh, remember, this is a police department that has had literally over a billion dollars in police misconduct lawsuits over the past decade or so. Um, but it is also a police department that is beset with the, the struggle and the difficulty of trying to police to respond to crime in the city that has, among our largest cities in America, more homicides than the two cities larger than it combined. And that is a reality that has existed in Chicago for at least a decade. Um, it is also a department where police officers are on the front lines. And as we have all too often heard and understand the dangers of that, police officers are being killed in the line of duty. Commander Paul Bauer, Officer uh, Ariana Preston most recently. Um, but, uh, but also we have officers who have actually taken their own lives under the stress and the strain of trying to do the work that we are asking them to do. So there's a lot to handle. And uh, good news is, is that these folks are going to figure it all out in the next 30, 45 minutes or so. So we have that to rest sure. So with all that being said, let's, uh, let's jump right in. And again, uh, Nicole, we'll start with you. Uh, just a brief words about you and, and, and what you're doing, and then, and then Bob will finish with you. All right, well, first of all, thank you so much, um, Alden, for um, joining us today and um, moderating this panel discussion. Um, <clears throat> my name is Nicole Jordan McBride. I am the advocacy director at the Policing Project um, at NYU School of Law, who is actively working with the Chicago Police Department to implement the Chicago Neighborhood Policing Initiative. Prior to my role here, I served as the first coordinator for Alliance for Police Accountability, um, which is part of the coalition that was responsible for getting us the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability. My mic is all over the place. <laughs> that's, that's it. Passing it. <laughs> hey, hey, everybody. I am uh, I'm Anthony Driver Jr. Uh, I currently am the president of the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability. Um, Thank you. We are in the middle of conducting the search for uh, the next police superintendent. Um, our commission came into being uh, in July of 2021 with a supermajority of the city council voting for it. Um, we have oversight authority over the Chicago Police Board, uh, COPA, which is the investigatory body of uh, the police department and also over the Chicago Police Department. Um, a lifelong Southsider. I'm a Bulls fan, Sox fan. I don't like Cubs fans. <laughs> And in, in my uh, in my day job, I'm the executive director of the SEIU Illinois State Council. Good afternoon. I am Bob Boyk. I am the vice president for public safety at the Civic Committee of the Commercial Club of Chicago. Prior to that, I uh, had several different roles within the Chicago Police Department, including uh, leading the Office of Constitutional Policing and Reform, which is responsible for consent decree implementation, among other things. Uh, and had the pleasure of serving as chief of staff to a few uh, different superintendents. Um, so look forward to the discussion today. Great. So with no further ado, let's dive in. Um, so uh, community policing is a topic that's brought us here today. Um, I can remember that community policing actually began in the mid to late 90s. Pilot program, uh, CAPS, uh, the, the, uh, the acronym for it. Um, so the, our first question is, what does community policing look like, or at least what should it look like in your mind, and why is it needed? And the sprinkle on top of that is, that have we not been doing that for the past almost 30 years or so? Uh, Miko, we can start with you. Sure. So, you know, I think community policing is um, something that has become kind of a tagline at this point um, to say we're doing community policing. We have a community policing office. I think that it um, is the way to say that we are doing something with the community, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that we are actively engaging, um, participating in active listening, most importantly, taking the thoughts, the information, the perspective, the strategies of community members who are living in these communities on a day-to-day -day basis into both consideration and um, into account in how policy is written, how officers are showing up in the community to drive public safety strategies, right? And so when we think about community policing, I would like to broaden that definition. You know, I often say that we have to move from community policing being something that a 
police agency, this in this case, Chicago Police Department does, to it being the core of who Chicago Police Department is. They have, the Chicago Police Department has to move to a place of understanding that the more often that we say community policing is over here, every other officer is over here, then we are signaling, signaling both internally and externally that this is a subset of what we do and then everyone else does the real police work. When the reality is, is that policing with the community is the work. It is driving public safety outcomes with the communities that you serve in a democratic way that allows for everyone to have mutual accountability and partnership in driving what matters most to them. Oh, Anthony, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Feel free to jump in. Um, I, I, I'd actually like to take this as an opportunity to plug our, our, our newly elected district councils. Um, I think that is what community policing looks like, right? Uh, I think you can ask a number of different officers, uh, a number of different brass, what does community policing look like? You can ask folks from around the country, um, and they'll all have a different answer. Um, but the reality is we're, we're a big city. Um, that's made up of neighborhoods and what community policing should look like is different depending on the neighborhood that you are in. Um, and so, you know, these new this new body of, of district counselors uh, are, are here to solve that exact problem. Uh, what community policing looks like in the 22nd district will look very different than the third district or the seventh district. Um, so, you know, the idea behind it is you should never be more than five, 10 minutes drive or, or bus ride or from somebody who can represent you and your community uh, when it comes to public safety. I think in our city for a very long time, we've had a very centralized form of power where the mayor or the, a strong person form of government uh, appointed everybody and everything and everything came back up to that one person. Uh, so what, what the district councils do is they actually decentralize that, um, put power back in the hands of everyday residents, and now residents can come out, talk to the district councils, and actually formulate what community policing will look like in their specific communities. Um, so that was my long way of saying that I think that's what community policing should look like. I think it's very different uh, depending on the neighborhood that you're in. So I agree with everything uh, that has been said. When I hear the term community policing, I think of effective policing. And what does that mean exactly? Um, it means that uh, the role of everyday officers, not officers assigned to CAPS or not officers assigned to the uh, neighborhood policing initiative, but everyday officers, the officers that you see rolling around the streets every day in Chicago, um, have a role to play in building community and being a part of the community and getting out of their vehicle and knowing the community um, and knowing the businesses that are on their beat. So there's really two, two facets. There's what the officer does to really get at community policing, uh, how the community is involved in fighting crime, but then there's how does the system structurally support that effort? Um, and those two pieces, I think, um, are works in progress in Chicago. Uh, thank you for all of those. Um, uh, just a reminder, uh, if you have questions, uh, there should be cards on the tables. You can certainly uh, complete one of those, and we'll try to get those in when we move to your questions um, a little later on. Um, Bob, to piggyback off that point around structural support uh, to, to do the work of community policing, as, as all of you all described. Um, so let's jump right into this question around probably the most important person in that structure was the person who would be leading the Pacheco Police Department. Uh, based upon what you've described of what community policing should be, what kind of person should Anthony and uh, others who are involved in the process, Anthony might want to sit this question out. Um, what kind of person um, should should they be looking at in terms of leading a Chicago Police Department that is rooted in community policing as you've described it? So I think before I answer that directly, um, I think there's a, a couple of important concepts to understand from a structural point of view. Um, and that is that we have a consent decree in the city of Chicago, and that consent decree says that we have to do a number of things. Um, number one, and you won't find this language in the consent decree, but this is sort of the essence of what it means. We have to redefine the role of the beat officer. What do we ask officers to do every day? Are we asking them to do traffic stops and street stops, which have largely been, um, from a data standpoint, determined to be somewhat ineffective? 
or do we ask them to get out of their vehicles and develop relationships, go into the businesses and develop relationships? Great, if that's what you're going to do. But then you need a structure that supports that, a structure that creates geographic accountability for the officers that are working the street, meaning they work the same area every single day, meaning they have also the same supervisor or group of supervisors every single day. That sounds basic, but that is not the way CPD is structured. And so from a structural standpoint, that has to shift. So what I would be looking for in a superintendent is someone that buys into that, someone who's going to lead from the front with those concepts, and someone who's essentially going to revolutionize the way we do policing in Chicago. Yeah, I think that I agree 100% with that. And I think when you take it to the next level is not only do we need this, right, but we need a leader that is committed to training officers, right, to not just training but retraining and being committed to that process. Um, right now we have several, you know, thousand beat officers and field training, field training officers and detectives and, um, you know, a full, the police, a full police department that has been policing in one direction, right? And so we have to have a culture shift. And we know that a culture shift is not easy to accomplish. So when we're looking for a, a leader for the Chicago Police Department, I would say that we need someone that's both, um, competent and um, compassionate, right, and, and leading a department, understanding the struggles of his, uh, the historical struggles of the Chicago Police Department and the communities that they serve, right? But we need, we need competence and we need them to be able to communicate effectively and be able to um, hear the voices of both community residents as well as their in, the rank and file officers because these are the people who are in the community every single day and we have to have someone who's willing and ready to lead by example. If we're asking officers to get out of their cars, to come into the community, to sit and listen actively to community residents, to work with district council members, we need to see leadership that is willing to do the same. And that starts at the top. So a, a superintendent that is really, that's really ready to get in there and work side by side with the officers that they lead to impact the communities that they serve. Okay, thank you so much. I'm sorry, I'm just getting my thoughts together here. Um, so the, uh, well, I'm sorry, Anthony, and just in case you wanted to add any, anything to no, that. I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts on, on what the next police superintendent should look like, um, but some of them might be streaming and watching, so I'm, I'm going to take a pass. <laughs> I just want to hear you say it. That's all. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely want to answer, but I also know that, you know, I'm, may or may not be interviewing folks in the next week. So probably not smart. Um, so in addition to um, what you guys have offered, um, you know, one of the things that people are looking for in the Chicago Police Department is to essentially kind of get its arms around the level of crime and violence the city's experienced. Um, we all know the storylines the last few years since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the numbers have not looked like that in since the 1990s. Um, uh, Bob, you talked about kind of redefining the way people think about what community policing is. Uh, but is there is do you, it seems like we butt heads to some degree, or at least generally speaking, people butt heads in terms of thinking about effective police work. So that means making these stops, doing this, so on and so forth. I think. Perhaps the general public sees it that way. I think perhaps also the rank and file within the Chicago Police Department sees it that way as well. Um, are they mutually exclusive? Can, uh, exclusive? Can we be, uh, you know, aggressive in going after and trying to tackle crime and responding to crime, and also staying true to the tenets of community policing? And should we see those things as butting against one another? I think being aggressive at developing community relationships is aggressive policing, um, and. Uh, look, I'm not sitting here and suggesting that police need to stop doing the things that they are empowered to do under the law. That's the last thing I'm suggesting. Um, and I do think officers have a role to play uh, in enforcing the law, but they have to do it when they have the legal basis to do it, the constitutional basis to do it. Um, but it should not necessarily be the default. Um, and so effective policing to me means 
officers taking enforcement action when they have the legal basis to do it. But all other times should be really focused on that relationship development piece. You know, we hear a lot about clearance rates in the city of Chicago. Um, and, you know, many people have their own solutions to it. But I think at the core of improving our clearance rates is building trust in the community. And I don't believe that's an option. I believe that's a must-have. And it is, uh, it is what the consent decree calls for. And when it's implemented with fidelity, I'm confident that that's where the police department is going to land. The question is, how long will it take to get there? You, you know, every summer, I think we, we get to a place... So I, I will challenge to say, are the tactics that have been used historically effective, right? Because what we see, particularly as the start of summer, is this, um, we revert back to this idea of heavy policing in, in certain communities, right? Um, the traffic stops, the sitting on the community. And we have not seen that yield the results that we wanted to, 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 to see, what we haven't done, right, is really embrace this idea of beat officers maintaining integrity of the of their geographic assignment and actually working with the community to build relationships before we even get to May, right? So if we keep taking this approach of of starts and stops, we'll never get there. And I think that you know this is why I'm consistent. I consistently say we have to make community policing not just a program or a strategy within uh, the, the department. It has to be the core of what they do. Every single time an officer walks into the community, they're either going to strengthen relationships with the community or they're going to tear them down. Yes, enforcement is needed sometimes, but that should not be, that should not be the default, as Bob said, we have to be able to work with community resources, with community residents, and figure out how do we address this without using enforcement and allow that to be the last resort and not the first. That's how we get to a place of building trust, not tearing down relationships, and actually having community members that are, will that are willing to sit at the table and have real conversations about how we partner to co-produce the public safety, the communities that everyone wants to live in. Yeah, so um, I think for me, I would say that, that we don't have a choice, right? Um, our city is and has been in the crisis for a very long time. Um, and I think we need to be very honest about that. So when when you asked that question, the first thing I thought about was the strategies that our department is currently using, right? Um, you know, I, I went, I attended Officer Ariana Preston's funeral. And I, to be honest, I really haven't been right since then thinking through that, but I think that there's really three tragedies in that, right? The first one is the loss of a life who, by all accounts, is one of our best and brightest, um, represented the best of, of what we had to offer as Chicagoans. But the less talked about story is, why was our workforce allocation plan so bad that it took someone 30 minutes to respond to a shot spotter alert? And that's, that's the second tragedy. But the third is, why is the trust in the community so bad that nobody called 911? And nobody's talked about that. Right. So when I and when I was experiencing that and I was sitting there and I was thinking through it, it's like, man, it, it really personified like how deep uh, trouble that we're in, where you can lose somebody that's so bright and has so much to offer our city on one hand. On the other hand, they're backlogged so badly that nobody can respond to it for 30 minutes. And then the community has lost so much trust in the system that not a single person dialed 911 for over 30 minutes. Um, so for me. I think a lot about the strategies that we're using. Um, I think a lot about transparency. I think a lot about relying on the community for the answers, right? Um, I say a lot that, like, I'm not in this position to be an expert. I'm here to listen to experts. Um, and I think if we all embrace that a little bit more, that I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. But if you are an individual expert in your community and you know what your community needs, then maybe I can rely on you for that information. And I think if we use that type of model and that type of strategy on a citywide basis, we can eventually get um, get get to a better place. Let's touch on that just for a little bit more, if we can. Uh, just we we talked a little bit about the the role of the police department, um, uh, kind of joining into the notion of community policing and embracing that um, for the community. Talking about this, the distrust that's there, and I think we all have a fair enough understanding of why that's been there, and it's and it's been entrenched for a long period of time. How might community policing, as you see it, 
build the trust that individuals, residents, everyday people have in their police force and, and, and become a little more involved uh, on, in terms of their role in, in community policing? So I would uh, point back to the structural issues. Without staffing consistency, and Anthony refers to workforce allocation, but that's a part of workforce allocation. Without consistency of people working the same area, geographic area, every single day, without familiarity with supervisors um, or supervisors changing every single day, um, I think it's, it's very difficult to build those relationships. And so, you know, whether you're talking about from the community perspective or the policing perspective, how the police are structured matters a lot. Because if the person you see every day is changing, you're probably not going to go talk to that person. You're, you're, you're less likely to do that. However, if the person you see every day is consistent and they're, they say hello to you <laughs> um, and they just do some basic human things, that's a different conversation. And, uh, you know, that's really what we have to get back to. Um, we've, we've had um, times in our history where, you know, the structure has been better than others. Uh, but we are really all over the place in terms of structure right now in light of uh, a lot of reorganization that has gone on. And we've got to get to the root of what the consent decree requires, uh, which really will, um, I think, really lays out a, a pretty clear path uh, for how we build those relationships. Anthony, uh, just speaking specifically about the folks on the district councils, and your organization has done uh, some very direct training uh, for those individuals. Anything in particular that you guys have instilled in them that you think will be helpful in terms of their role with regards to community policing? Yeah, um, I think that's that's an interesting way to phrase it. So we, you know, are, uh, and I'm not, again, we're, we're two separate bodies that make up one, one entity. Um, so it's not necessarily our commission's job to oversee them or them oversee us. We we, we work in tandem, but I know our staff has worked with them on a number of different trainings um, to get up to speed. But I, I wouldn't say that there's a specific thing that we're trying to instill in district councils, but rather to rely on them to instill things into us and to, um, you know, to come to our meetings to to make sure that they're actually being the vo- voice um, and have the pulse of their community. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's necessarily something that, you know, we're instilling in them. Again, it, it, this is going to look, I was in Beverly and Mount Greenwood last night for a forum. That forum was a drastically different form from the one that we had at St. Sabina at, at Father Flager's church uh, on the south side, right? The, the, the issues that are happening there are very different, right? But they're all just as valid. Um, but it's going to take very unique approaches to, um, to actually get at the root of what's happening in each community. If I could just um, say real quick, I think that in addition to what Bob said, I, I also want to underscore... Um, the the work of the CCPSA and the work that um, President Driver is leading because we have a commission now that's really focused on front-end accountability. And what that means is, is they are working day in and day out to look at policies, to look at the way that policy is written. And, and that goes to beyond, you know, what has has been this idea of community oversight of the police, but it's really how can we have the best police uh, police agency possible? How do we have leadership that are supporting their officers so that we can have healthy officers coming into the communities that are capable of building these kind of relationships that have a mindset of I'm, I'm both supported internally within my department and externally outside of the department. Because if we don't really address that part, then no, no one is going to want to just get out of their car and, and, and talk to people and do all these other things, right? We have to make sure that we're taking care of the whole person that we're asking to put their lives on the line every single day and come and show up in our community. So that's A. If we're not if we're not starting there and really taking a look at, at who we're how we're supporting those that are in this position, then we're not getting anywhere. The second thing is transparency. One of the things that I'm consistently um, confronted with is community members that have policing happening to them and not with them. Right? We have for a long time policed in a bubble 
policies are written in the bubble, and then community members just happen to find out about it when when they are um, when they encounter that that scenario. So, if we're not having officers that are actively working with community members beyond a traffic stop, beyond when they're in crisis, right, and have the have the support to do so. And we are not communicating effectively with community members to help them to understand, you know, what is happening within the department as best as possible, then we're not going to get anywhere with community policing and we're never going to bridge the gap of trust. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so um, we're going to go to audience questions because we have quite a few of them here. Um, we've got a little time, but um, I'll try to uh, run, run run through these as quickly as we can um, and feel free to, to jump in as you as you see fit. Um, just a disclaimer, these are not prescription glasses. These are, uh, you know, just kind of uh, off the shelf glasses reading <laughs> readers. So if I mispronounce your last name, please forgive me uh, and, and just yell out if, if, if you'd like to correct me. Um, so this question comes from Amanda McMillan uh, with SGA Youth and Family Services. Um, and that question is, what kind of work is being done to support the mental health of first responders within the city? Uh, are there other supports that are needed? So I will jump in on that one. Um, not enough, first of all. Um, you know, I think everything that Nicole just mentioned is spot on. If we expect officers to be effective when they're out on the street doing their job, we have to make sure they're well taken care of behind the scenes. You know, we talk a lot about levels of trauma experienced in the community, and that's real. But police officers experience that same trauma, and sometimes over and over and over and over again. Think of an officer who, in the middle of summer, which is where we're at now, is going from call to call to call to call. These are sometimes, you know, very intense situations, and that's what you're doing all day long. Imagine what you might feel like getting off of work that day after, you know, dealing with all of that, um, all of all of that stuff that makes up the day of a police officer. That's real. And we have to do a better job supporting our officers in that endeavor. Um, I think one of the things that the city needs to look at is uh, mental health parity with how officers are. Um, I'm looking at Alexa James over there. Uh, but with, you know, how the city treats um, treatment, mental health treatment, it's not the same as when you go to your doctor for a physical. Um, it's treated very differently. And in some cases, it's prohibitive to the officer actually receiving that help. So I think that's really, really important. Uh, but I also think the department has to have a comprehensive wellness strategy that includes built-in days off, that includes not canceling days off over and over and over again. Both of my colleagues up here, you know, talked and touched on morale. And sorry, I'll, this will be the last thing. I'll oh, no, say. no, you're good. You're good. Um, but morale is a massive problem right now within the police department. And it's a problem because of the cycle of days off canceled, because of everything that's been experienced during COVID, during 2020 and beyond. Uh, on top of the just normal day-to-day -day trauma that officers are experiencing. And so, you know, we talk about the next superintendent, and I think one of you mentioned it, but morale has to be a central, um, a central issue that the next superintendent uh, has to address. And so they have to be equipped to address that issue. Um, so I think it, it, it all is connected. You can't look at morale and mental health as separate, distinct issues. It's all one and the same. All right, I'll jump to our next question here. Um, this comes from, please forgive me, Suzanne. Dovekis? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, her question is, uh, um, can't the city control the media info more? Uh, the news actually is, in quotes, teaching kids how to commit crimes, and the example she gives is uh, the jewelry store robbery in Oak Lawn today. Hmm. Can the media, the question is, can the city control the media more? Can't, can't the city control the media info more in terms of, I guess, what's actually shared, you know, the details of a crime? I'll, sure I'll jump out and say, I don't, first of all, we, 
I'm so grateful that I live in America, right? Because we have freedom of press. We have freedom of, you know, um, of speech. So we can't necessarily control what the media reports, but we can give the media something else to report, right? And so one of the things that I'm consistently saying and all of us say is that it takes all of us, the media included, right, to really address the problem that we have in our city. We need, this isn't just a police issue. This isn't just, you know, an oversight issue. This is every hand on deck, every social support on deck. And I, I would challenge all of us here, media included, to figure out how do we uplift and really highlight the resources that are available in our communities, right? The after school programs that are available and really bring those up to bear so that we can actually attract people to those resources and show what, what we have a plethora of, of community-based organizations in our city, small community-based or very neighborhood-based um, community organizations in our city. I seldomly hear plugs about those organizations that are doing amazing work, right? So how can we have media and everyone else to really uplift that and say, here are some alternatives so that we can have a holistic approach to solving the public, the public safety issue we have in our city? Okay, moving along. Here we go. Our next one is from Brian Johnson. Uh, and Brian asks, which police departments in the country are the most effective at community policing? And how do they concretely measure how well beat officers are building relationships with community? Um, well, first of all, there are over 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. So there's probably a lot of them that do it well. Um, you know, in terms, we always compare ourselves to New York and L.A. You know, we're, we're a big city, unlike most other cities in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, I think New York and L.A. have figured some things out that we've yet to figure out. Now, that doesn't mean they're, they're better per se. I mean, Chicago is unique. We have our own unique challenges and circumstances. And the way our city is built is not the way other cities are built. And all of that is a factor. Um, but I think uh, what we have to measure is really important uh, because right now, you know, supervisors uh, out on the street will reward officers for getting blue cards, which is basically the, the document officers fill out when they conduct a traffic stop. They don't write a ticket most times. They're just getting that blue card. Um, so why are we doing that? Um, Instead, however, what we ought to be measuring is whether crime is going down, whether we're solving problems, whether we're, number one, identifying problems and then solving them. That's at the heart of the NPI program. Um, and so I think, I think what we measure matters, and I think changing the dynamic of what we measure is something that has to take place. Yeah, just, just to piggyback off that, I think... Um what he's raising is a critically uh, important thing. And it also kind of ties back into the media narrative as well, that um, for a long time, our city has, you know, even though the trends, most of the trends will all be going in the wrong direction. Um, almost every Monday, there's a press conference about how many guns we've taken off the streets, but nobody ever talks about whether those guns would have actually been used, be used in the commission of a crime. So it's like now we're measuring success just based on, how many weapons we're recovering when the vast majority of those weapons are like from someone's grandmother or right. Exactly. That would have never, ever been used in the commission of a crime anyway. But yet, like that was the, the narrative that the city would like to spin. Or another good example of that, that ties in media and failed strategies is like, I'm always amazed that anytime there's a shooting, even especially if it's an officer involved shooting, like immediately the police department tweets a picture of a gun next to some markers. And it's like, this person did X, Y, Z. So now they've like created a narrative in people's head about what could have happened before any facts have ever taken place. Um, and then oftentimes, I don't know if anybody from COPA is here, you'll see the police department tweet this and then COPA will come out with a statement and say, well, we don't know, we're investigating, we don't know the facts. And us as a general public are just left to be confused and then we wait on the, the different media narratives to come out. Um, so I, I think that that's important too, that we're not, that as we attempt to shift the narrative, we're not shifting the narrative towards something that is 
uh, erroneous or doesn't actually help us like how many guns we collect and get off the streets. All right, next question comes from Clayton Harris III. Um, and Clayton asks, I teach uh, policing race in Chicago, and my students advocate for community policing as a way to address crime, but also race. How do you see this intersection with race, policing, and crime? Ooh. <laughs> that's, that should have been the start of it. Man. We could. Um, I, so I'll hop out and I'll make it quick so my colleagues can answer. I mean, I think that, I think, first of all, we have to understand structural racism and, and kind of how the city has been set up right from jump. The city has for a long time, if I'm just honest, has worked for those who wanted it to work, right? And we're, we have to, we have to A, acknowledge that, acknowledge the inequities and in distribution of both resources, um, financial resources, food inequities, police resources, all of these things that have plagued our city for years. And it set the tone for the distrust that has happened between communities of color and the police department that is supposed to serve them, right? So we let's acknowledge that. So now we're here, right? And we have to be able to get to a place of saying, you know, when we think about equity, equity isn't you get two, you get two, right? Equity is you may need five to get to the same place that this community that only needs one needs to get to, right? And so when we start thinking about the idea of, of public safety concerns and all the things that we're seeing in our community and, and, and it's concentrated in certain communities, but then you also have to think about what other disparities are there that the, the concentration is happening in. A lot of the communities that we're seeing that are plagued by violence and plagued by, a lot of these are quality of life indicators that no one is paying attention to. And then we wonder why we're having the situation that we're having. We don't have back to school coming, I mean, we don't have um, after school programs. I used to go to summer camp. I used to do all these wonderful things, right? There's no grocery stores. There's, and so if you set people in a, a desperate situation, what do you think is going to happen? Despair. And so we have to honestly assess that and start there. And this is why it's not just a CPD problem. This is an all of us problem and how we are investing in our community. Yeah, that um, I think you, you kind of said it all. But for me, that's a, that's a very uh, a very deep question, and it's one that I've tried to be really intentional uh, about answering as, since I've been in this position and being honest about it. Because the public discord doesn't really allow for the fullness of of what I experience as a black man in the city of Chicago when it comes to policing, right? And even currently, right now, I'm both going through the system as a victim of a violent crime who was robbed in January, right? And then I'm also in a way leading part of the system and looking for the next police superintendent. Um, and that's something that I have to, I have to sit with, right? So the, the intersection of race and policing, um, for me is, is, is one that's, that's very near and dear, right? If you ask my grandmother, what is, what is that intersection? She's going to say that, uh, being a police officer is a noble profession and it is a ticket to the middle class for black people, right? If you ask my father, he's going to say that they put me on the gang database for no reason. I've been on it for 25 years and I still can't get a, uh, a CCL, a concealed carry license because I'm on a gang database, right? If you ask young, Aunt, young Anthony about my experience, I would tell you that I was frequently profiled and frequently pulled over. If you ask me now as president of this commission, I will tell you I have met um, some of the most amazing officers that I've ever seen in my life who do really heroic things, right? But our public discourse allows for abolition and back to blue when my experience is all in the middle of that. Right. And I think that we're not honest about those things. Um, and, and, and to be honest with you, like, as you know, I, I, wore, I, wore, I wore this button on purpose today. I wear it on purpose because there are some tough conversations I need to have with, with my community as well. Like was, was Ariana Preston. She's an officer, but was she not one of ours? Was she not from our community? Did she not grow up here and, and live and have very similar experiences as us, right? Um, and then on the other hand, when I when I go to different places and other parts of the city and I'm getting a completely different perspective to actually be able to push back on that as well. So I, I just would say holistically, um, that is a very complex question. Um, it's all of those things in one. It, it's not one or the other, but it goes back to the media that 
um, the, the politics of polarization, the binary politics of Chicago, of this country, really only allow you to fit in one or two boxes. Mm-hmm. You either back the blue or you, you, you for abolition, right? Um, and it doesn't allow for the wholeness of, of what I experienced. Needless to say, uh, uh, Professor Harris, thanks for the question. Um, do we have time for one more? Just want to make sure I'm, I'm doing okay? Yep. All right. All right, let's jump in. This one uh, comes from uh, Margarita Rhine. From Rain. Rain. Okay, thank you. Um, how do you envision the newly elected district council members and the Chicago Neighborhood Policing Initiative to effectively work with the Chicago Department of Public Health, who currently violence prevention efforts Violence is a public health issue. It is. <laughs> That's written for you, Cole. <laughs> um, okay, so I am, first of all, so excited about the, the district councils and this democratic process that allows for community members who are experiencing, you know, the fullness of the city at a very micro level um, to lead these conversations and what's needed in their community, right? And to actually be the voice, to, to hear the voices of community members that, and a lot of times we just don't have city, the Chicago city is large, right? And so it's, it's impossible to have that level of bandwidth. So I'm excited about them. And, and the reality is, is for MPI, a lot of the community engagement work that our team has done, well, we're supporting now the district council. So please join the district council meetings. Um, that's my plugger. And so I think that, You know, this goes to, again, I cannot say it enough. This isn't just uh, work with the Chicago police or Chicago police situation. This is how do we bring every single resource to bear, right? How do we, the last time I was here, thank you for having me again. One of the things I said is that Chicago has, is, is seldom that the left hand talks to the right hand. We have program over here. We have this function over here. We have this department over here. None of them are talking to each other. Nobody is sharing information. And then it's this this very um, um, disaggregate approach to what we know is a all-hands-on-deck situation. And so if you talk to a B officer, a lot of times they'll say, if I had other resources, if I knew what other resources were available, I would use them. And so if we have, you know, all these other departments that are here to serve the community, to support the community, to support mental health, to support a a wide range of other, um, those who are experiencing um, homelessness, right? If they have all these things that are going on, then district council members should be talking to them. And they have a very real opportunity to be a spoke in the wheel of the community that's bringing all of these resources to bear so that CPD has more resources that they can lean on and that everyone can start talking to each other about the needs of that specific community in Chicago. So if I could just jump in on that one. We need one table in the city of Chicago where we can have this discussion. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, you've both touched on it today about everyone operating in their silos. Well, you know, government has to be a key partner at the table, and that's local government, county, state. Um, you know, obviously, philanthropy has a role at the table. Community has a role at the table through CCPSA, the district councils. Business community uh, has, you know, needs to be at the table as well. And so how can we collectively bring resources to bear to tackle the number one issue in our city, public safety, um, so that we can actually agree on some long-term goals and drive toward them? Um, So I I believe firmly that we are very close to one of those collective moments of action, and uh, I just hope we embrace it. Can I just say this one last thing just to piggyback off the piggyback? Um, I think that we also have to make sure that we understand what we're saying when we talk about public safety, right? We're not talking about crime necessarily, right? We're talking about what makes you feel safe. How do we create safe communities, safe neighborhoods, a thriving city? And yes, crime numbers, crime stats is a part of that, right? People want to know that they can walk down the street 
without being robbed or carjacked or anything like that. But public safety goes so much further than that. And I think that that also is what Bob is saying, that it has to be one table because we have to be able to address the quality of life concerns that plague our community so deeply that they transcend to becoming a criminal problem. And if we can actually start thinking about public safety from a broader perspective, then I think that we naturally will deal with the crime problem that we have. Thanks for, uh, for those thoughtful answers. One more uh, round of applause for our panelists. Looks like we're going to have to uh, leave it at that. Uh, thanks to everyone for the questions, and apologies to those whose questions we weren't able to get to. And now we have uh, Dan, who is uh, the City Clips, City, yeah. City Clips version of Russell Simmons, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I haven't heard that one yet, but I'll take it. Um, thank you. Thank you all. And that was excellent. And uh, all of the work, Bob, Anthony, and Nicole, that, that you're doing um, it's summer in Chicago. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm, I'm really confident after hearing this that uh, we're going to be better off um, and, and head towards a great summer um, full of progress and opportunity. So thank you for all that you're doing, um, and thank you for being here to share that with us, uh, that incredible conversation. That's what we do here at City Club. So Bob and Nicole, I mean, every, everything that you were all saying, this is that table, right? This is that platform, and that's what we're trying to do here is allow all of you who are doing these great things in Chicago to elevate that discussion and use this platform to bring it to the rest of the civic community um, and, and, and with all these great, incredible civic leaders and, and community leaders. So please keep these programs coming. Please keep attending. Please keep up your membership. Um, there, there's so much more to come, and we're so excited to tackle what can be difficult conversations, right? Uh, but this is, this is such a great place to have them, and I'm just so honored to, to be able to have all of you here, especially the four of you, and welcome you back. I'd like to also uh, share with you, so you come back more often, uh, a one-year membership. Uh, so I'll, I'll make sure everyone gets one of these um, to the City Club. And we look forward to check out the website. Lots of great programming coming up, some that have not been announced yet. Um, thank you again. Thank you all for running a great program and, and the three of you also for all that you're doing and again, sharing it with us. Uh, I hope all the rest of you enjoy the rest of your afternoon and, uh, the beginning of this great summer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.